0: A popular New York burger brand has finally expanded after eight years to their second location. Harlem Shake, founded in Harlem, uh, is opening their new location, not in Harlem at all. In fact, not in Manhattan, but down in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Talking to the uh, the two women who own the the company uh, who have launched this brand. I wanna talk to them about their growing pains and specifically growing a brand at a time like this. Don't go anywhere, it's a great conversation. Stick around. There's an old saying goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see those who will never see and those who can see when shown this is restaurant strategy a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking Hey there, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week, we toggle back and forth between a monologue-style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated marketing concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, listen up. I've got two webinars coming up on April 4th and April 6th. I am doing this webinar only two times. To go sign up for it, visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash webinar. Bunch of you have attended some of my other webinars. You're really gonna want to check out this one. It's gonna go over the eight things you need to do to turn your restaurant around, right? You got a failing restaurant, you got a restaurant that isn't performing where you need it to. What are the eight things, the eight areas that you need to focus on to turn it around quickly. And how can you turn it around quickly? And I'm talking about like eight weeks time. I'm gonna give you eight things. You could think of it like tackling one thing every week for the course of two months. At the end of that two months, I promise you follow, if you follow this blueprint, you will have changed your restaurant forever. Again, go to restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash webinar. So, my guest on today's show, uh, and there are two of them, uh, Yelena Pasek, who's the founder and CEO of Harlem Shake, and her partner, co-owner, Dardra Coxum. Ladies, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us. We're so happy to be here.
0: My pleasure. So. Harlem Shake uh, opened eight years ago and uh, you finally have made the jump to open your second location. It's not in Harlem, it's not in Manhattan at all. You actually came way down here near me to Brooklyn. Um, I wanna go back and talk about the genesis of the company, You know where it started, how it started, um, why it started, and I wanna talk about the growth and I wanna talk then, eventually, we'll get to talking about Brooklyn and this new location. I think there's plenty to talk about over the course of this interview. Talk to me about how it started. Uh, what, what were you What were you trying to do when you when you first opened Harlem Shake?
2: So um, I guess I could say something about that to begin with because um, the the idea was mine um and it it was a long kind kind of a long time coming um to you know come to the point where the harlem shake got opened and i created this uh, amazing team that includes also daidra and and some other people that we can you know expand on in a minute uh so um i originally am from croatia um and i came to the united states in 2000 on a j1 student exchange visa but then um i um got, um, you know, really impressed by the culture. And I used to work for a US company Procter and Gamble back in Croatia, even when, uh, you know, I lived there. So I really kind of was familiar with the way things operate in business culture, and so on. And I really liked that much better than you know, the one the 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 systems we had in Croatia. So uh, here, I uh, moved to New York in 2000. And I opened uh, several businesses with my uh, family and then husband. Um, And those were all successful. Uh, They were all based out of washington heights which is a neighborhood a little bit up north from harlem um, it's about two train stops up on the a train uh, and we had a series of uh, businesses started with coffee shops uh, one and then another and then um, a little pasta and grill store and uh, that was successful so we expanded next door got a full service restaurant with a full liquor and at one point we had four of these uh, my general distraction uh during those times and those years was going to the gym and the nearest gym was on 125th street and, and frederick Douglass boulevard in harlem so i would hop on the train during my break and go to the gym but as i became like very regular in that routine i started meeting a lot of friends in harlem that were neighbors who also use the same gym so uh that was circa like 2003 2004 so i've been doing the same thing for years maybe six or seven years was that was my routine and and that was the way you know i like to like spend my free time and obviously over the course of six or seven years i uh, met a lot of people uh, and i've really gotten more to experience the harlem culture um, what i mean by harlem culture is the architectural um, uh, treasures that are still present in harlem the friendliness of the people the small town feel that harlem has versus you know some other neighborhoods in new york that feel more transient uh, and also i've seen a budding um, you know, culinary scene and abiding uh, restaurant scene, so to speak. But at the time, at 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 the beginnings of my visits there, I still didn't, you know, perceive that as a very uh, safe investment, so so to speak. I I I was a little bit on the edge about whether you know Harlem was ready for. Um, for, for you know taking all of your savings and investing there. but I was always tickled with this, this idea persistently because I really liked the people and I liked the neighborhood uh, so much that, that I couldn't like turn my, my thoughts off of that idea of you know opening something in Harlem. So kind of things came to a full circle when I was uh, separating from my ex-husband and in the process we've sold those businesses at the same time, um the first places in harlem were already opened that 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 signified that new harlem renaissance first the uh, red rooster opened i believe it was 2010 shellou opened in 2010 i believe also then the corner social opened across the street all of them on Lenox 70 which was just a Two blocks down from our current location, uh, you know. At this time, uh, obviously, there, it was uh, it was visible that you know Harlem's ready for that. You would see all the people enjoying those branches. You would see people on the street. Uh, that culture was always there. Don't not, don't get me wrong. I think Dardra can speak more on like native and other places like Setepani that were there even before the 2010. But at that point, it became a momentum where you could see a mass of people people uh you know that that could be my potential customers so from a business perspective being a mom of two two girls you know I I wasn't ready to take and at that point newly single mom I wasn't ready to take like huge risks but I, I thought the time was ripe so I basically took all my uh all my savings and some proceeds of my uh divorce and I invested all of it I like really was excited to to try and and try something new in harlem and move to harlem at the same time so through a friend that um, i've had at that point for years i was connected to the landlord of the building because the building was not even on the market and i was able to negotiate that lease at that same uh, time um i knew that you know i wasn't going to be able to do all of this myself especially because i was a single mom of two kids and i had obligations in the night of a familiar type, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, I, um, I I started creating a team. First, um, uh, my uh, my cousin who was like kind of my angel investor joined. Then Emil, who is uh, another partner in the business, joined. Then a Dardra joined, and then Dennis Decker, who uh, did our brand uh, book for for the initial you know location. Uh, so we created that team. Um, at that point we already knew we were going to have this location uh, on 124th and lennox it's funny looking back uh the, the location had like a weed lot next to it it was just an empty lot and today it's a huge complex with whole foods uh, but you could already see you know that time was coming around for harlem um at the point of of getting um the location signed for uh i honestly wasn't sure what are we going to be selling there because I was trying to be very pragmatic, you know, having the experience uh, experience of a takeout uh, casual coffee shops, having the experience of a full restaurant with liquor license, having the experience of a pasta and grill fast casual, I compared all these different concepts and i I tried to see what i could fit in as a woman and as a mom of two and uh, my thought was that i was not going to be ready to have a full liquor license place where i'm going to have to spend nights but i would prefer to have something where i could be a little flexible and have more daytime business and delivery business so that was one criteria another one was very pragmatic it was a question okay what does harlem not have and needs and to me uh, it was so Self explanatory that burgers would do really well and shakes because at that point, uh, there was really no burgers and shakes in Harlem apart from, you know, your usual suspects, McDonald's and uh, checkers. Um, but we were looking for a better burger concept. So, uh, Shake Shack at that point, I think, was really um, had a few stores downtown. Uh, I really looked up to Shake Shack concept and I thought it was a great thing. And I said, okay, what would happen if, you know, we did. Uh, something similar to a better burger concept that Shake Shack would have however with an emphasis on Harlem culture okay where can we tap in I'm, I'm you know I'm an outsider here like how do we tap into the, the, the that amazing treasure that Harlem has as a neighborhood uh, uh, and my partners already who were uh, uh, who were there in the in the whole you know uh, concept uh, both Dardra and Dennis, are harlem natives and dennis is an amazing interior designer the grew up in a fabulous brownstone uh, knows everyone she will tell you more about it so then we came up with this idea of why don't we make a place that's going to look like it's been there forever and it's going to actually be an homage to that architecture and culture that i was so amazed with and instead of you know, just being like a like a carpet bagger that just brings a place that's conceptually completely unrelated to the neighborhood. Which, to be honest, a lot of people do. Uh, why not, you know, celebrate the neighborhood and 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 uh, bring back some reminiscence of the places of the past that were there in the neighborhood? So that's how it all started. I think Darda can speak a lot more on on you know the, the places that were there before and what was her vision. Uh, but this was the beginning of of Harlem. Uh, concept you know as far as from my point of view
0: yeah no and i appreciate the you know uh, all the background here i think it's interesting that it really took an outsider's eye um to to try to you know to try to do something for the neighborhood of the neighborhood i I do want to jump over to dardra and talk about uh, how you then came to the project and um going through this project as an as a native new yorker as a native harlemite Talk to me about your perspective through it all.
1: Yeah, so my perspective is, it's, it's so interesting because as many times as me and Yelena have these conversations, hearing her perspective sounds new to me almost each time because it's much it's much more different when you're in the community and you lived here. It's kind of like sometimes you don't even know what's missing because you've been there for so long or so you're so used to what has been there. And burgers was something we definitely were missing. Um, there were like a few places, like she said, like McDonald's or like Jimbo's or there used to be a burger joint on 145th street, like fast, casual. You just go, you pick up your burger and you head right out. Um, but I was introduced to Yelena through my father who was a restaurateur at the time. And he made the introduction with, from me to her. And at the time I was still in college. I was going to school for marketing and Advertising. Um, I did go to culinary school in high school. So I was kind of like a foodie pretty much my whole life. I always had an interest in food and was always pretty particular about what I was eating. So um, my dad introduced me to Yelena and we kind of clicked right away. You know, she was asking me, you know, what my plans were what i had planned to do and at the time i was going to school in ohio and i had this big dream that i was just going to come back to new york and get hired right away and live in my fabulous high-rise apartment and things were just going to go great but my life did not turn out that way <laughs> but luckily i was in
0: it never does right
1: <laughs> it never does but i was introduced to her and she explained to me the concept of harlem shake and you know what her vision for it was and when she told me that i was like oh my god this is so cool like burgers milkshakes in harlem especially with the location that we had like we were, we're on 124th street and linux avenue also known as malcolm x boulevard this is a street where linux lounge was um someplace that my grandmother visited um Another place was 22 West, another place was Pan Pan, which I always talk about. And these are just restaurants that were on Linux Avenue that people would just go to after school or go to before school, stop in and get a cup of coffee or after work, you come off of work and you pick up a bite to eat and then you go home. So that is what I was remembering when she described the concept of Harlem Shake and being that it was gonna be in a community that I've lived in forever and that my family is and. Maybe the children I have in the future. I'm just like that would be great. That's that's something totally awesome that I would love to be a part of. So,
0: so talk to me about what prepared you to be in the industry. I mean, obviously, you said it. It kind of ran in the family, and I think you guys both share that. But, uh, but Dardra, you were on sort of a different track. So. So talk to me about how you got clicked into this track.
1: Um, So Yelena, Yelena was like, this was kind of like, you know, when you jump into a pool, you can put your toe in it or you can just do a full on cannonball. And I pretty much did the cannonball mode. So I had, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I've I've worked in like a restaurant at, at college on my campus, but that was. That was the most i had ever done really in a kitchen besides my own home um but when i spoke to her she was you know my number one teacher she taught me about everything from when we were doing the renovations when we were picking out the recipes to tasting milkshakes to doing interviews like interviewing staff i remember when we first started Yelena. i don't know if you remember but you were like hey i'm busy can you interview um this person they're coming in for a cashier and in my head i'm like no I can't do that. I'm not, no, I don't, I don't know. What to yeah, do. I have the, I have the Eastern European military approach. Yeah. So <laughs> it worked out. Uh, but, uh, um, it, no, wasn't, it wasn't an option for an answer. You know, we were busy. We had things to do. So uh, yeah, we had things to do,
2: but I did learn something from you too. Uh, it was still actually today, uh, has an amazing sweetie. That's a, that's a treasured like Harlem recipe. And that, could not be without her so yes yeah you know, we each learned from each other also uh really accommodating my own personality and my own um expression uh to uh harlem culture you know that does take some adjustment and understanding so uh, so Dardret helped me tremendously tremendously through that in the throughout the years
0: so talk to me a little bit because i think you guys and i appreciate this Yelena. Uh, you you specifically talked about how um you tried to get into you know inside the market right you really tried to understand you know what's here what do they have what do they don't have what do they need and how can we provide them with what they need i think it's the core of all marketing that that unfortunately gets lost a lot when we talk about the restaurant industry um we're always talking about you know all the stuff we can do right all the social media and the email and the website and this and that and I think oftentimes we skip right over that first part which is that you know taking a breath t- taking a moment to look around and say what do these people need how can I serve this this uh, community Uh, in a way that they're that they're not being served. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Of course. So uh, I mean, serving the community is is it runs such a gamut. First of all, I think serving the community just with sandwiches or burgers or whatever you may would absolutely not be enough. Secondly, not only did I want to find out what people need and and what you know, I can bring to the table. I had a passion for that. I always had a passion. I I, I always have a passion for culture, and that's from you know my high school roots and um, how I grew up. I mean, I I grew up in a in a in a Yugoslavia, which kind of got torn, you know, in the in the in the war of the 90s, and there were so many different cultural influences. So I I am I was always like a cultural preserva- preservationist, if you may say. Um, to me, really finding out what uh, what the community that I'm gonna come into needs was not only a matter of a business success, it was a matter of principle. So it was a matter of getting of getting ingrained into the you know community in a positive way. So yes, uh, Harlem needed a burger joint and I knew that Harlem doesn't need another super expensive place for like an nighttime you know because th- there was there was already a few of those i uh, we wanted to create kind of a third place like a like a like a reasonably priced place place with simple recipes that are not going to sound like when you read the the menu uh, you get intimidated because a lot of people in the community maybe are not so primed to the you know at, at that time at least but even even today if you look at like really the you know the the, the span of, of of what harlem neighborhood is there are there is a percentage of people who are not primed to the fine dining so they don't want to walk into a place where they're not going to feel at home and there's going to be a menu that's going to sound intimidating and they, they feel like they they you know don't want to pronounce it uh, that's why if you look at our menu our menu is so Uh, simple and it has you know it has simple names and it's trying to be a little quirky it's trying to be humorous it tries it tries to like uh implement humor in an unobtrusive way so we have fun names also like hot mess uh and you know i can i I can go about the names on the menu for like three (laughs) three months but um the what, what community needed was like for me was two pillars right one was the menu and what is going to uh improve the lives of the people that I'm going to be serving and improve my profit line and the second one was giving back to the community so giving back to the community was always part also of our mission from the very beginning and throughout the throughout the the years we've we've developed really that giving back to another level as well so so those were the two things you know that I was looking for uh accomplishing when coming to the neighborhood and throughout the years
0: so then talk to me, uh, and I don't know, I don't know who's the best person to answer this, but, but talk to me about how you, how you found that balance, right? You, you knew you wanted to be higher quality than the fast food places nearby, but you know you didn't want to be you know, super fancy and elevated, and, and but h- how did you find that? It sounds easy the way you describe it, but I'm sure it wasn't easy. So, so talk to me about how you found that middle ground.
2: I, I wanna tell you just the formula really was a simple recipe uh super high not super high but very solid high quality ingredient and consistency for the recipe i w- we were so fortunate uh because initial recipe um i was um, re- doing research for a burger joint mind me i'm from croatia we don't eat burgers in croatia and uh, it was definitely not like a labor of love to create a burger menu because I'm not a huge burger either. I, I, I'd always like pick a fish and, and you know, olive oil over a burger. Uh, but because we, I've decided that that's something that, you know, would do well and, and I really kind of set my mind on that, then I was wondering who could be the best person to create that menu. And I was super lucky because um, during one of my cold call emails, in uh, my research, I found this uh, article from Kenji Lopez-Alt, who at this point full disclaimer has no involvement in the restaurant where you know dear friends he lives on the west coast and currently is a new york times writer and he's published some like smashing hit uh, cookbooks like for example the food lab uh which was uh, which is already a classic and then a cookbook for children uh called every night is a pizza night i think that was uh inspired by the by the birth of his daughter alicia And then uh, he just is coming out with the new book about the wok, the the cooking techniques, which can be pre-ordered on Amazon. But going back to, you know, uh, um, Kenji after this little advertorial, because I'm very happy to, you know, support anything that he does. I think he's a real genius. Uh, Going back to how Kenji and I met. So I was just browsing, you know, on Google and I sent him an email, never in the world, you know, hoping that he would actually reply or say yes well turns out he was living like six blocks up he grew up in harlem his grandparents were in harlem he was thrilled to help and he got uh on board of the project of the consulting project where he developed our whole burger and shake menu which we actually is the is the Uh, you know, is the basis of, I would say, 95% of our menu never changed. Remember, I was, you know, talking about consistency. I, I really am a strong believer in consistency in restaurant business. I think if you pick what you want to make and you just keep making it the same way and making it right, you will inevitably create a strong, repeating customer base. So, Therefore, you know, the majority of the stuff that, that is on our menu today is the exact same stuff that's been on the menu since 2013. And it was all created by Kenji um, in this very dynamic and exciting process that we've had. I think Dardra talked a little bit about the shake tasting. Maybe you can say something about how we did the shake tasting. I think that was milk tasting. It was very fun, Dardra. You want to chime in?
1: Yeah, there was- <laughs> I just remember that night so clearly because there were so many different things that we tasted. And it's like, you know, every milkshake tastes good. A milkshake is a milkshake. But I think the difference and you can really taste it at Harlem Shake is you can really tell that we took the time to pick the best one because you really are getting the quality taste. So like Yelena said, it's a, it's a simple recipe, but it's it's consistent and it has a good quality to it so it's always great and there was one thing that you didn't mention yelena when we were talking about um you know what harlem was missing that i think that we were from being here and i think not only harlem but just new york in general um new yorkers and the people new yorkers are new yorkers at work you know we have this fast-paced energy you know we're in and out we like things to be quick but harlem shake kind of gives you a moment to slow down i think and all of our employees have main tags on so we are familiar with our customers and our customers are familiar with us and i think that is something that also contributes to our success you know it makes people feel more comfortable just like yelena was talking about um the menu having things that are simple to pronounce where people aren't shy about ordering uh you know what they may not you know, is a fancier cheeseburger, you know? But I think people do appreciate yep. that and they appreciate being greeted when they walk in or us saying, good morning, hello, how are you? Welcome to Harlem Shake. You know, it's, it's like a family.
0: Yeah. So tell me, uh, everything you're describing sounds great. It sounds perfect. And I'm going to assume, because I've worked in, I don't know, a couple dozen restaurants, I've opened nine of them, I'm going to assume it wasn't all great. Um And one of the things... Uh, that I think the listeners here really come to appreciate is the honesty uh, and the transparency on the part of the guests. So I'm going to ask you in that, let's say that first year, what wasn't great? What was? What went wrong in that first year that you had to that you had to figure out to to make it work?
2: Um, the first thing that wasn't great was that I didn't want to leave my apartment the day before opening because we had so many people uh, coming in before we opened. Uh, that i had a full-blown anxiety attack that was my first individual venture of course with partners but as a principal so i was always like a second violin or you know a support player priorly so i didn't know how it's going to be when i'm the you know the number one uh, person and i was just really freaked out uh and i remember the day we opened uh when we first opened our doors there was a line around the corner um and that happened because we had uh, a marketing uh, situation happening uh, with the meme harlem shake which we can talk about a little later but uh we were all panicked so actually this was the best problem to have but it still was a problem just you know getting our order quantities straight getting our cooks to to work so fast and getting the food that's of us a sufficient quality was probably something that we were dealing with for the first three weeks and uh being the first location not
1: only that but the amount the amount of food because it wasn't the first day out of out of the milkshakes wasn't it it was just like the fryer would the fryer didn't
2: you know want to heat the oil fast enough we ran out of milkshakes after three hours uh and we bought a lot in our opinion right we, we were so we until we <laughs> ironed out these kinks it was really the patience and graciousness of the neighbors who were so amazing about it uh and i'm wondering if you know we ended up in a different neighborhood would the things be the same way but it, it that was one problem um Another problem was uh, you know through the ten years, I think the biggest problem we faced in the industry was the exorbitant fees by the by the third party delivery engines. We do have a very big amount of deliveries. Um, we We actually delivery accounts for about thirty percent in the summer and maybe more than fifty in the winter uh and uh, before the um, um delivery fees were regulated on the city level through the relentless work of Andrew Riggi and uh and the uh, Harlem uh, I mean Harlem uh uh New York City you know restaurant association uh we dining alliance basically uh we had suffered tremendously by paying you know either being excluded from the market because we were refusing to you know pay 35% fees for the third party uh or you know having a lot of stress and and ending up with the profit uh, and loss statement where you see that you paid more fees than than what your bottom line is and those types of things are very frustrating when you work so hard um but fortunately this ca- kind of kind of changed in the last two years because of the pandemic that was the result so that was one of the bigger economic issues that that i've seen as a principal right
0: um so, but tell me this, because uh, you know I coach with clients all the time, and and I always tell them to think of those uh, hefty commissions as customer acquisition costs. You know, c- consider them not as a as a third-party delivery fee, but consider them as part of your marketing budget. Like it's a it's a great way to introduce yourself to customers who may never have uh, found you otherwise. Um, do you guys do you guys share that as well? Do you think in terms of that? Or is there a plan that you guys have in place to try to convert them from, say, a DoorDash to first-person Let me, let me
2: put it simply. Yes, we did have a process in place. Uh, for the third party where we would acquire that customer and, uh, you know, try to entice them to order directly through our website, through discounts and a repeating marketing activity. But in the end of the day, the mat mm-hmm. still needs to jive. And and uh, I think it was, it was uh, just exorbitant fees and they didn't work out in that way in the beginning. Uh, and also, you have to really consider that a lot of people, myself included, will sometimes just go back to the ordering engine because that's where they have a whole set of their preferred places they have their credit card information saved, and it's a matter of convenience and there's nothing wrong with that but but to compete you know with, with with that and be forced to pay like exorbitant fee every single time In the long run, it still didn't, it doesn't work out, especially if you do have a good customer base and now your third-party delivery drivers are cannibalizing your own delivery driver's income. And at that point, you're, you know, ending up paying people who probably won't make so much tip and you still have to keep them on the payroll or their income becomes unpredictable and your work labor burden becomes unpredictable because at one point you have like a lot of third-party orders and at the other not. I'm just not a big proponent of, you know, 35 percent delivery fees. I think there has to be a balance between a small business and a huge corporation, and I think that balance has to be respected on both ends. I am absolutely for you know making money or, uh, for them and for ourselves, but not only for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you go. Know.
0: So then, how did that? So is that all? Just uh, just through regulation that that sort of balanced out. Where do, where do things sit now?
2: yeah so the new york city hospitality alliance which we are pr- proudly a member of uh and uh, actually our our great neighbor um the principal of sylvia's uh Treness Woods black she's she's on board uh and andrew ridge is the president i think andrew ridge is a, such a hard-working man and he really stood and represented the rights of the of the small business restaurants in new york city at so many occasions particularly with this one um when the pandemic hit uh, as you remember there was a total shutdown so all of the sales went to delivery it was hundred percent delivery we are very uh, proud to say that we never closed our door for an even one day and we were fortunate because a lot of you know tablecloth places or full service places really didn't have a choice delivery was a very um side a revenue stream for those places mm-hmm. but for us delivery was sturdy enough that we that we could afford to stay open even when the first shutdown of the pandemic happened so that was amazing moreover when other places full service places closed we had a spillover of those delivery sales to us because we were still open so we came out of 2021 really in a great way and we in fact were able to open a second location uh, due to that but going yeah, back so to- let's- going back to the delivery just to finish the, the the story of the delivery when the pandemic hit and uh people were forced to only resort to delivery as the only revenue stream to survive obviously it was uh not it was uh, it came into the spotlight that you know people are paying 35% for for delivery fee for the third party and they really don't have that's not an additional customer acquisition that's your only customer so um, uh, hospitality alliance lobbied in the city council for a long and they followed the san francisco example where um, i don't know if you know you're aware or if you've ever like looked into it but san francisco instituted that cap a while ago uh, and, you know, they have a kind of similar labor structure, uh, higher wages, um, uh, rents are exorbitant in San Francisco, just like New York. So the small business owner gets squeezed from many different angles uh, because, you know, it's not like you work in Ohio or Pennsylvania where your rent is, is reasonable so you can afford a higher delivery fee. You, you in New York City have no vacant premise tax in New York City landlords can sit on properties without renting them out because of the valuations they're not forced to to rent them because they have no vacant property tax so rents are high the the wage levels are higher which i actually support i think people should work for a living wage i i am that's the the one you know high expense that i don't mind uh and then going to the delivery fee uh, so you have three three high expenses which is a very endemic for for uh a city in the united states right it would be a a handful of cities that have that kind of situation so when it came into the spotlight that um, delivery fees are so high the hospitality alliance started lobbying with the city council to cap them during the pandemic duration and they managed to do that so now all the third-party delivery uh delivery uh businesses have to cap the marketing fee at five percent and the third-party delivery fee at 15, so the tops you can pay is 20, which I think really um, really sets things in in a good order in, in and and everyone is able to make money. And yeah. uh, most recently, they voted for this to become permanent, so it was a great win for the restaurant industry
0: in the city. Talk to me as as you're going as you're going along, right? And the restaurants now eight, almost nine years old. Um, why did it take so long to open a second location and what was the impetus to open a second location?
2: So, we this is in fact our third location. We did open a second location in 2015. Uh, I'm sorry, in 2016 and we closed it in 2017. <laughs> we hmm. only ran Okay, it for I 10 didn't times. know that. Yes. So, uh, our second location was in East Harlem on 2nd Avenue and 111th Street and um we were really successful from the beginning and there was a uh, you know pressure to expand and to grow and then naturally we thought you know let's expand our footprint in harlem first so comparing the rents we made a cardinal mistake of the of the of the you know trying to Prioritize cheaper rent versus maybe more lucrative location. And I think, you know, everything is always a blessing in disguise and every failure is a step to success. So we learned so much from that closure. Thankfully, you know, our, 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 our flagship business did so well that we could have um, kind of absorbed that loss and, and, and move on. Uh, but we did learn that um, that specifics of the marketing are very important. That uh, average income is not median income, and that you know, uh, like socioeconomic and demographic uh, consistency of the market is much more important than one might think. So, uh, that those were the learnings from that location. Uh, it was a beautiful location. We were able to salvage all the furnishings and uh, decor, and actually, you can see them. Like Darder can speak more on that. You can see a lot of them in our Brooklyn location now.
0: So, you open that closed it relatively quickly and then had. did you spend time after that looking for another new location or how did that go? Oh no
2: I think we spent first yeah first two years after we closed it uh, we spent with just uh, a mental like uh, resuscitation (laughs) because you know when you when you have your first venture and it's so greatly successful and then you want to expand and it fails in months which honestly this the decision to close it was just very pragmatic again i i I thought to myself well we can't be putting the good money into the bad money for long because you know we're going to drain our our resources so um we turned it into a private event space until our, our our lease uh good guy clause was up so that was another another thing that i think we did well like we pivoted we closed the restaurant turned it into private event space it was breaking even until you know but it still was a lot of work breaking even until we had our good guy close up and then we gave the place back without no major consequence financially speaking so um then uh honestly i personally needed i think two years to get over that mm-hmm. fact and and you know there was a lot of reckoning who was whose fault it was and who did the wrong thing and what was mismanaged and where were the wrong premises and a lot of uh you know very honest um sort of confrontations between the partners i mean we've we've learned a lot from that situation but we did come out much stronger on the other end which then i think really it was a blessing in disguise
0: I uh, I can I can appreciate that. I mean, I, I had said before we uh, before we started this that I really want to make sure to to get into the nitty gritty because I think, um, as you said, it's it's instructive more so than the than the successes. Um, Dardra, I'm curious to hear. You know, as as we're going along here, how how was? Talk to me about your role here and how your role you know evolved, and especially as as we started moving into expanding into a second location now you know, not just, uh, you know, on the other side of town, but uh, another borough away.
1: So my role um, through Harlem Shake has changed a lot over the years. So I was introduced to Harlem Shake, you know, knowing pretty much nothing about the restaurant business. And the first few years, I was very much so hands-on, and Yelena was teaching me about the operations of the business. Um, and then a few years later, unfortunately, when we were opening the second location, my mother got sick and had cancer. So during that time, I left New York. So when our second restaurant opened, unfortunately, I wasn't even present for that you know, part of Harlem Shake's history. Um, and then once I came back to New York, once I readjusted my life after my mother's unfortunate passing um when i came back in my my work changed i started doing something completely different in my field um, and i started getting into interior design which had been a previous passion of mine Um, So I started doing work in interior design and I started doing work with photography. And I also, um, you know, being a gen, what what do they call us? A millennial? Being a millennial, I was very familiar with my iPhone. So I started uh, managing our social media. And that actually started when we first opened Harlem Shake. We had a graffiti artist come and write Harlem Shake and graffiti on these huge boards that were up in front of Harlem Shake. So I think that was actually our very first Instagram post was the picture of our shed with the graffiti on it. And as Yelena was saying, um, there was a Harlem Shake meme that was really popular in the dance around that time. And people assumed one had to do with the other. So they just were going crazy on our Instagram. And before you know, we had like 10,000, 14,000, like thousands of hits pretty much like overnight. Um, and then after I came back, I was in Ohio after I came back from Ohio. Um, I started doing that. And then when we started talking about opening up Park Slope, Yelena was like, you know, it makes perfect sense if we were to bring you on as the designer for this job, since I had been switched my careers for the past few years. So then I came back to Brooklyn. So when we went to Brooklyn, we completely gutted um most of what was there aesthetically um, but the kitchen that was there was brand new there was a burger business that was there right before us that had never opened. So our kitchen was brand new. All we really had to do was the aesthetic change. So once that was done, I had been in Brooklyn for a few months by then. And I had gotten pretty familiar with customers and the people of the community. So now I am there a few days a week, I am helping manage that, um, that location and doing my thing over there. So what
0: led you to Park Slope, Brooklyn, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a great neighborhood, um, but different than Harlem. What talk to me about the differences and then talk to me about the similarities? Why did you feel like the brand was gonna be a good transplant there?
2: Okay, so this is how this came about. Um, In 2020, uh, the when we came out, you know, on the other side of pandemic, uh, basically stronger than than before uh financially speaking uh which was kind of pretty miraculous in my opinion but it did happen we really started looking in the earnest of of for expansion and as 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 uh, we know that so many places unfortunately folded you know in the same time period we wanted to take advantage of the second generation restaurant spaces that were available Uh, We learned also the, you know, we learned throughout the two construction projects for the flagship store and for the the demise store in East Harlem, how much it, there is a a huge financial difference between, you know, refurbishing an existing restaurant or building from scratch from a vanilla box, only the, you know, investment into the hood and exhaust and and all the infrastructure is, is actually, you know, taking up practically like a third or a half of the whole construction budget so if you have that in place that's a that's a that's a great savings and in the situation where you have so many places that shut down and are vacant it would be only natural to try to find something like that but honestly we were not looking in brooklyn particularly with an emphasis to open in brooklyn at all why we opened this place in Park Slope is because we were looking to purchase a mixed use building and uh, in our strategy we believe that you know securing real estate is is a great way out of you know dependency on the landlord uh, tenant relationships or or just transiency of leases as such because all leases at one point expire so the negotiation is always you know an an arising issue going down the road so uh-huh. Uh, buying real estate for us was strategically uh, one of the goals and we still believe that that's, that's the way to go. So we happened to found, find a building in, in the, on Fifth Avenue in Park Slope that we were considering for a purchase, but it was in line, it was too, too narrow, there was no, not enough uh, sidewalk space. Uh, and uh, accidentally, while looking at that building, I parked my car in front of then Seatown uh, uh, Supermarket uh, because that was the only parking available so when I was coming back from that viewing I saw this place on the corner of Sterling and and um fit that was all covered in like you know brown paper and I said wait this it, uh, and it said Burger Rim right so um I said what's that burger shop like was there a burger shop I was talking to my partner Emil uh and um we're like oh well it doesn't seem to be for rent but we were snooping around and we see through the little you know, patch in the in the in the um, in the paper that there's like a like, it looks like potential harlem shake. It looks like a burger place inside, right, with the counter and and we immediately called our purchasing broker because we do work with the purchasing broker uh, who was also listing the mixed use building and we asked her if she could make an inquiry and find out that if this is for rent. Turns out the place was I think listed for rent maybe a week ago. It was kind of like it was kind of like you know the the hand of fate, if you will because it was not something we were looking to do it was not that we were looking to rent something we happened to find a full on built place with complete equipment that was never used and we got it for a really good key money deal and uh, that was just something that we couldn't say no to <laughs> so we signed the list like three months later and we took only Emil, who is uh, always in charge. Uh, my partner Emil, one our partner Emil, who's always in charge of construction and development, was um, in was um, was. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, cut. My mom just came into the kitchen, so I'm trying to prevent the noise. <laughs> so I'm gonna start with the sentence again. So uh, my partner Emil, who is in charge of construction and development, uh, was um, able to re- re- turn that place around in less than three months. And we op- we signed the lease in the end of June, and we opened the place in October. Um, maybe just needed a couple of weeks for the for the health department to license. But yeah, that was a very quick turnaround
0: right and so that was just this past fall yeah. so you guys have been open i guess now about five four or five months at this point
2: yeah i just wanted to add that of course we would not have opened the place just because the place looks nice and it has equipment you know we did a lot of research with our buying broker on the demographics walked around i i was a huge fan of brooklyn because i actually had an apartment in brooklyn uh in before in between like 2005 and 10, uh, which was like in East Williamsburg. So it was a little bit different area, but I was very familiar with Park Slope and one of my favorite neighborhoods in the city. So I was personally like excited to, to come to Park Slope.
0: So talk to me as you, and I'm going to put the cart before the horse a little bit here, but talk to me as you think about further expansion. Um, Not that it's on your radar now, or maybe it is, you tell me, but, what are your criteria for looking at new locations and again i'm asking this selfishly i think on behalf of the the listeners because uh many of them are you know independent operators um you know run a small to mid-sized business maybe one location maybe two or three but they're, they're thinking about expansion just like just like you are talk to me about the criteria and and how do you think about uh where to go next
2: i mean uh first i I really think uh that i want to point out that we've been also we used the the time of the pandemic to work on our franchise so we are going to be starting to sell franchises very shortly because we're registering Uh, all of our franchise project is done so um you know i would not only recommend the criteria for the new location to your listeners but we've had to really think about it very hard when when who's our ideal franchisee and how would we help them secure the good location so going back through uh, the experiences we've had in uh, the recently the, uh, you know in the previously closed store and the experience we had in park slope previous experiences with my previous businesses and harlem i would say that first of all using a good broker that has access to technology that can bring you the data that's accurate is a must because uh, once we've met our buyer's broker um i don't want to advertise that now but you know let let their name be like not mentioned but but the amount of technology and the amount of market segmentation data and and uh data of you know uh walk traffic all of that is so important so so uh, i would recommend anyone who wants to open a location to um absolutely make sure they have someone like that in their corner Um, that's one part another part never underestimate the value of sitting on the corner for extensive period of time (laughs) and seeing who these people are that are walking down the street who the traffic is, even seeing how fast the car traffic is. I think our big mistake in in East Harlem was that we had gone by the uh, median, not median income, but average income. We've seen some passing traffic, but we neglected the fact that there was a very busy car traffic going in one direction that was almost annoying. And uh, sometimes, sometimes intangible things like that can mean the difference between the success and failure. So, okay. so while you know we have amazing technology at our, at our disposition these days, and we should make sure that we 100% use it, at the same time we also should never neglect the gut feeling, the feeling about the people who walk down the street, looking if these people look like they could be your customers, and and simply counting them, really telling them up throughout seven day period, seeing you know how many people did pass on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and telling them up and seeing what's your potential traffic exposure. So those are those are some considerations that that are my recommendation uh for for search of a good location
1: Facebook groups help well because um at Park Slope there's a Fifth Avenue Facebook group and I'm pretty sure almost every neighborhood has one so if you could find out how to become a part of that you know that's has everything that goes on in the community, whether it's crime, whether it's a parade, whether it's a lemonade stand from a girl down the street, whatever it is, people always put those in their Facebook community groups. So that's a great idea as well. Talk
0: to me about how, so now you've got two locations and talk to me about profitability and how you manage. And I think this is a a good place to kind of, you know, wind up here, but, but talk to me about how you think about, you know especially now as you're thinking about franchising so it's all about you know systematizing everything and and making sure that you can easily pass it on but talk to me about how you think about profitability about managing those costs about you know driving revenue how you think about growth um, and and what sort of targets you go for 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 profits?
2: Okay, so um, being that you know I'm I'm, I'm managing all the finances uh, pretty much, um, I, can, I can give you a, a brief answer. Mm-hmm. Um, our flagship store and our second store have very different under the gross profit uh, cost structure. Uh, in our flagship store, we invested so much in PR over the years and marketing and giving back. Um, so giving back to us was not an expense it was an investment because we knew that if we if we really get you know the community uh, rooting uh, we will get a loyal repeat base and uh, marketing was similarly you know in high regard and we had we had percentages set up for that with without question uh i think um i mean in in basic like school book terms, you would want to keep your your prime cost, which is your labor and your 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 cost of goods sold somewhere between um you know fifty five sixty percent right you can go higher than that and then yep. um I would definitely recommend especially very young brands and emerging invest in uh your brand strategy in your brand um in your brand, a definition in 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 invest in the consultancy to really to really see what distinguishes the, your brand from another because that's a key to to really become interesting to a, to a, to people to have some distinguishing qualities. I, I see way too many great places who have great recipes and great food and everything, but they don't have that something that that makes a customer remember them, whether it's a name, a logo. Um, i love it you know a backstory, um, um um cultural involvement these are all the things that are at our disposal as restaurant owners or as business owners to infor- reinforce our brand so i think people who kind of like a penny smart and, and dollar foolish when it comes to the, the opening and don't put put it on their pro forma are going to make a mistake i think that it has to be in your pro forma from before you open the place and you have to really plan that cost out and and try to get you know the bank for your buck for that investment and plan the investment um ongoing you know costs look we've learned so much in the pandemic from one single thing that we closed the breakfast right so for years we we had breakfast and i'm not gonna lie i love that shrimp and grits i'm still missing it so much um, you know, we as as a business owners get emotionally attached to, to to menu as well because it's same like you know vets get attached to the pets and 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 school teachers get attached to children and restaurant owners get attached to recipes. You know that's something that we have to admit happens, especially if you love food. But then uh, and we had opened that breakfast for years from eight to eleven thinking, you know, okay, this is a community place. We want to provide that because a lot of places in our neighborhood don't serve breakfast. We sort of have like an old school diner feel. So it kind of makes sense. But guess what? In the pandemic, when we closed and closed that breakfast, uh, our profitability went up by like three or 4% because of the number of skews we cut down from the yeah. menu and the uh, additional labor for the front of the house employee and uh, just the simplicity of prep and recipe. And then we've learned sometimes less is more. So streamlining your your menu is extremely important, especially as we were getting uh, prepped for franchising, we went through many exercises with our consultants. Uh, I mean, (laughs) it was painful, you know, but product mix exercises and and what is like, what cut it out, you you can only keep three, you cannot keep five or six, cut it out, detach yourself emotionally. I think that's something that the restaurateurs will, always go through in the beginning as they open, you know, places and and learn how to like put profitability above just emotional attachments or thinking that this is something that means to people. In the end of the day, if you cut down your menu by five items, I think that's happening so much now in the pandemic because of the supply chain issues. Guess what? People still come and they'll find something that they like, they might, you know, consistently ask, but
0: I agree. This is I say all the time. I I totally you're saying everything I believe I I so appreciate this I'm and uh, I did not tell her to say any of this all the listeners out there I did not tell her to say any of this this is uh, these are things I believe these are things we talk about week after week Um, these are things that I go over with my um, with my uh, the clients that I that I coach with it's it's so crucial it's so important Uh,
2: another another thing I would want to add is a lease negotiation yeah Um, you know for novices um, the rent structure is not only your rent, your additional rent, especially in New York City. If your if your uh, real estate tax is not calcu- uh, is not calculated or negotiated properly, can bury you alive. Um, I've had that experience firsthand in one of the one of the family businesses we ran in the early two thousands. Uh, where you know the real estate tax per month ended up being more than uh the rent and it was never like it came from the left field you know after five years we had no idea like why was this happening to us but it was happening to us because we didn't sit and and realize it when we were signing so i think a negotiation is uh, of the lease and keeping it within 10 percent or less of your of your planned revenue is also key so people get really carried away with you know um people get carried away yeah. with like a uh kind of they see stars and they go on and and you know get exorbitant rents and they think they're gonna make it and, and it's so sad to see you know dreams shattered because of that so i would recommend like to uh, for the location search and for profitability list negotiation get a good attorney and make sure that that those numbers are driving is is key as well don't count on oh yeah i'll just be- become rich because i'm so amazing and and you know, I will be able to pay that rent. Well, why don't you become rich and keep that money for yourself instead of giving it all to the landlord? Yeah, lender? yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I've loved this conversation. I'm, I don't, uh, I'm always uh, very aware of, uh, of uh, my guest time and so I don't want to take too much more of it. Um, ladies, where can people go to learn more about you, your brand? When will franchising information be available in case there are listeners who are curious to learn about that?
1: We keep all of our information on our website, which is harlemshakenyc.com. And our socials are the same as well. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Harlem Shake NYC. And that's for both locations, Harlem and Brooklyn.
2: And then um, if you, um, if you, uh, we, we are launching our new website um, shortly. So it's gonna also have the franchise part, but um, let me just pull up the franchise phone number because we have that too as well already. Um, and, and if you want to, you know, inquire about the franchise, you can always email me at jpassick at harlemshakenyc.com.
0: Perfect. We'll include all those links in the show notes. Um, ladies, any last words of wisdom, uh, for restaurateurs out there? They've been through a hellish couple of years. Uh, if there are any, uh, budding restaurateurs out there who, who want to open their place. I'm going to go to each of you. Dardra, uh, I'll start with you. Uh, any, any insights bits of wisdom that you want to share with the audience
1: definitely surround yourself with a great team you cannot do everything by yourself um you will need support make sure you have a good team um someone that can help you or someone that you can get advice from you know don't be afraid to ask for help for sure
0: and yelena
2: uh, try to keep your work and life balance um, oftentimes restaurant jobs are um, similar to like nurse jobs or you know airline pilot jobs we we have a very blurred um, timeline of, of when we're supposed to work and when we're supposed to have time with our family um I think um, we have to like try to still have time for our family and our private time that's that's one thing and another thing is always look at uh, Always look at the restaurant not only as a place where you will sell food products, but as a product itself that you can sell to someone, if that
0: makes sense it makes a lot of sense uh ladies uh, i wish you uh lots of luck i congratulate you on the the success you've already had i wish you a lot of luck with this new location and as, as you continue to grow the brand um and most of all i want to thank you for taking time out of your day to sit chat with me um and share your uh, your insights with the audience thank you so much for being here
1: you're
2: so welcome thank you so much this was a lot of fun thank you
0: Once again, I wanna thank Yelena and Dardra for taking the time out of their day to talk with me, to talk with us, to share their story with all of you. I really appreciate you guys listening. In this week. Hope you got something out of the interview. Uh, A quick ask of all of you if you have a few seconds, please go leave a five star rating uh, for the podcast on Spotify and leave us a five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All those reviews, uh, and there have been a bunch coming in recently, so thank you. Uh, But all those reviews really do help us, uh, help boost us up in the rankings. We're now consistently, week after week, in the top 100 marketing podcasts of all podcasts in the world. Uh, this is an incredible feat. Um, I'm humbled uh, by it, and I have you guys to thank. Uh, thank you for showing up. Thank you for uh, for talking about why you love the show and everything you're getting out of the show. Take a few minutes. Uh, go leave us a rating on uh, pot, on uh, Spotify Podcast. Go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoy your week, and I will see you next week.